Welcome, friends, to a history of the King James Bible podcast. To find more episodes and information, just go to our website, www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now here is G.K. with the latest episode. Well, we are back. Some of you will realise that the website was unavailable for a little while there. I want to begin by saying a big thank you to the person who prefers to remain anonymous for funding the A History of the King James Bible podcast website for another year. Shortly before the site went down, I was very ill. I was in the process of putting together episode 17, the one you are now listening to, when I was struck down with a powerful sickness. At the same time, my family and I were about to set off on the holiday of a lifetime. I think probably the biggest and bestest since our honeymoon many decades ago. So in the midst of all that, the illness, the holiday, the website went down, um, the subscription ran out, and I didn't even realise it. And to be honest, I couldn't have cared I was that ill at the time. And then I was contacted by a wonderful listener who kicked in the funds to keep the doors open for another year. So... I sincerely hope and I do pray they are blessed for their generosity. Thank you very much. Now, parts of this episode were recorded back in September. It's now November 2016. So I hope it comes together okay for you, my dear listeners. I do have continuing issues with getting the show up onto iTunes and sadly, no one responded to my call for assistance there. And as I said in episode 16... I don't have the time or the skills to deal with iTunes, so that, as they say, is that. Again, I suggest you sign up for email notifications at the website. That way you won't miss a thing. Before we move on, I also want to send a big shout out to Sam up there in the milking shed in Wisconsin. Greetings, mate. I hope all is well with you. Now to this episode. This is episode 17. The second Oxford Company, part Two, we will be looking at the remaining members of this company. If you have not done so yet, go back and listen to episode 16 because it outlines what these blokes worked on as well as discussing a couple of its key members. Okay, enough of the ramble. No, wait, wait, wait. I think it sounds better if I call it a preamble, not a ramble. It sounds, you know, better. All right, let's now move on to our next translator for this panel. George Abbott, who is the only one I have come across so far who committed accidental homicide. He was also known as the most famous of all the learned men in the day. So this should make for interesting listening. This distinguished ecclesiastic was a native of Guildford in Surrey. He was the son of pious parents who had been sufferers for the truth in times of popish cruelty. He was born October 29, 1562. At the age of 14, he was entered as a student at Balliol College, Oxford, and in 1583 he was chosen to a fellowship. In 1585 he took orders and became a popular preacher at the university. He was created Doctor of Divinity in 1597, and a few months after was elected Master of University College. At this time began his conflicts with William Lord, which lasted with great severity as long as Abbott lived. Dr. Abbott was a Calvinist and a moderate churchman, 
while Dr. Lord was an Armenian and might have been a cardinal at Rome if he had not preferred to be a pope at Canterbury. In 1598, Dr. Abbott published a Latin work, which was reprinted in Germany. Next year, he was installed Dean of Winchester. In 1600, he was elected Vice-Chancellor of the University and was re-elected to the same honourable post in 1603 and 1605. It was about this time that he was put into the Royal Commission for translating the Bible. Dr. Abbott went to Scotland in 1608 as chaplain to the Earl of Dunbar, and while there, by his prudent and temperate measures, succeeded in establishing a moderate or qualified episcopacy in that kingdom. This was a matter which King James had so much at heart that he ever after held Dr. Abbott in great favour and rapidly hurried him into the highest ecclesiastical dignities and preferments. He was made Bishop of Lichfield and Coventry on the 3rd of December 1609, and then in less than two months was translated to the See of London. In less than 15 months more, he was made Archbishop of Canterbury and Primate of all of England. Thus he was twice translated himself before he saw the Bible translated once. Though an excellent preacher, he had never exercised himself in the pastoral office, rising at one stride from being a university lecturer to the chief dignities of the church. When he reached the primacy, he was 49 years of age and was held in the highest esteem both by the prince and the people. In all great transactions, whether in church or state, he bore a principal part And yet, at times, he showed, in matters which touched the conscience, a degree of independence of the royal will, such as must have been very distasteful to the domineering temper of James, and very unusual at that age of passive obedience and servile cringing to the dictates of royalty. Thus it was, when the king, under the pretense that the strict observance of the Sabbath, as practised by the Protestants, was likely to prejudice the Romanists and hinder their conversion, issued the infamous Book of Sports. This was a declaration intended to encourage, at close of public worship, various recreations such as promiscuous dancing, archery, leaping, vaulting, may games, whitsonales, or morris dancing, setting up of maypoles, or other sports therewithin used. This abominable edict was required to be read by all ministers in their parish churches, its promulgation greatly troubled the more conscientious of the clergy, who expected to be brought into difficulty by their refusal to publish this shameful document. Archbishop Abbott warmly opposed its enforcement, and forbade it to be read in the Church of Croydon, where he was at the time of its publication. The opposition was too much, even for the ruthless king, and he at last gave up his impious attempt to heathenize the Lord's day. In 1619, a sad mischance befell him. His health being much impaired, he had recourse to hunting, by medical advice, as a means of restoring it. This sort of exercise has never been in very good repute among ecclesiastics. While His Grace of Canterbury was pursuing a chase in Bramshealy Park, a seat of the Earl of Ashby de la Zouch, an arrow from his crossbow aimed at a deer glanced from a tree and killed a gamekeeper, an imprudent man who had been cautioned to keep out of the way. This casual homicide was the cause of great affliction to the prelate. During the rest of his life, he observed a monthly fast on a Tuesday, the day of the mishap. He also settled a liberal annuity upon the poor gamekeeper's widow, which annuity was attended with the additional consolation that it soon procured for her a better husband than the man she had lost. I've just got to jump in here and comment on this. Um, 
Don't you think that it's funny that he points out that the gamekeeper's widow, at the loss of her husband, she scores some do-re-mi and also out of it gets a better husband? Don't you find that interesting and somewhat amusing uh, thing to point out? I wonder how McClure knew that she got a better husband. I'm not sure what his sources were, but I just find that somewhat amusing, especially, you know, in the world we live in where these sorts of things are more important than um, more genteel times than those in which we live. Anyway, it stood out to me. Sorry for the interruption. Just rewind your cassette there a little bit and go back and have a listen to that. It's quite quite funny just the way it's put there. All right, let's let's continue. For the primate, however, who was ever a celibate, there was no such remedy of grief, and all the rest of his life was overcast with gloom. This business subjected him to many hard shots from them that liked him not. Once returning to Croydon, after a long absence, a great many women, from curiosity, gathered about his coach. The archbishop, who hated to be stared at, and was never fond of females, exclaimed somewhat churlishly, "'What make these women here?' Upon this, an old crone cried out, You had best to shoot an arrow at us. It is said that this tongue shot, which often goes deeper than gunshot, went to his very heart. His enemies made a strong handle of this accidental homicide. It was insisted that the canon laws allow no man of blood to be a builder of the spiritual temple, and that the primate who had retreated after the accident to his hospital at Guildford was disenabled from his clerical functions. The king appointed a commission to try the question whether the archbishop was disqualified for his official duties by his involuntary homicide. After long debate, in which the divines on the continent took part, it was the general decision that the fact did disqualify. Nevertheless, King James, in his usurped character as supreme head of the English church, an office which rightly belongs only to the King of Kings, issued, in 1621, a full pardon and dispensation to the humble primate. Still, several newly appointed bishops, who had been awaiting consecration, among them Dr. William Lord, then Bishop-elect of St. David's, refused to receive it from his hands, and obtained the mysterious virtues of the Episcopal grace from other administration. Others, however, as Dr. Davenant, Bishop-elect of Salisbury, and Dr. Hall, Bishop-elect of Norwich, were solemnly consecrated by the dejected Metropolitan. Dr. George Abbott continued in office during those troublesome times which preceded the Civil War, till he died at his palace of Croydon on Sunday, August 4th, 1633, at the age of 71, quite worn out with cares and infirmities. He was a very grave man, and of a very fatherly presence, and unimpeachable in his morals. He was a firm Calvinist, and a thorough Church of England man. He was somewhat indulgent of the more moderate Puritans, but the more zealous of them accused him sharply of being a persecutor, while the high-toned churchmen vehemently charged him with disloyalty to their cause. It is also said that as he had never exercised the pastoral care, that he was made a shepherd of shepherds before he had been a shepherd of sheep, and was wanting in sympathy with the troubles and infirmities of ministers. He was severe in his proceedings against clerical delinquents, but he protested that he did this to shield them from the greater severity of the lay judges, who would visit them with heavier punishment to the greater shame of themselves and their profession. He was, in truth, stern and melancholy, as compared with his brother Robert Abbott, 
the Bishop of Salisbury, it was said that gravity did frown in George and the smile in Robert. The other brother of these bishops was Lord Mayor of London. The Archbishop was regarded as an excellent preacher and a great divine. Okay, so that is Mr. Rabbit. Let us now move swiftly on to some other members of the panel, one of whom held a very important position in the most noble order of the Garter. Who were? In 1604, John Harmer was Regius Professor of Greek, Warden of St. Mary's, Winchester, Rector of Droxford, and a Canon of Winchester Cathedral. Born in 1555, he was educated at St. Mary's and at New College, Oxford. Not only was he a top-flight Greek scholar, he was also a noted Latinist, and like Lancelot Andrews, he was well-read in the theology of the Church Fathers. He was also a university proctor. That's another one. We've met a few lately, haven't we? And he also became a DD, a Doctor of Divinity, in 1605 while the translation was underway, of which, the translation that is, it was said that he had a prime hand. This included the fact that he was also chosen for the Board of Critical Review, uh, a subject that we'll cover in a future episode here on the History of the King James Bible podcast. And uh, uh, during his time, he published a number of scholarly works, including Latin translations of John Chrysostom and a translation of Bez's French sermons into English, of which McClure says shows himself to have been a Calvinist. So by this brief bio, you can see he was worthy to be counted among the translators. But sadly, Harmer did not live long after the translation, as by 1613 he had died. John Perrin is our next translator. He was another Regius professor of Greek and a fellow of St. John's. Shortly after the work on the Bible had begun, James and Queen Anne visited Oxford, and Perrin presented an oration in Greek during the visit. Queen Anne, whose personal preference was not this scholarly translating stuff, but a good mask ball and a healthy dose of courtly gossip, declared that she had never listened to Greek before this time, and that she had enjoyed it. Marvellous. Uh, sadly, Perrin died in 1615, and that's all I have on uh, John Perrin. The second Oxford company had a number of deans on its panel. Um, you had Ravis, Abbott, Eads, uh, who we haven't covered yet, he's coming up, and Giles Thompson, Dean of Windsor and Wolverhampton. Thompson, the son of a London greengrocer, entered University College Oxford in 1571 and was elected Fellow of All Souls in 1580. Both Thompson and Eads were chaplains to Good Queen Bess or Gloriana, as she was wont to be called. And he, Thompson, was a noted preacher, a prebendary, a rector, a canon. And yes, you guessed it, he was also a DD. In 1602, he was appointed Dean of Windsor, and as such, acted as registrar of the most noble order of the Garter. Now, I personally know very little about the order of the Garter, but if you go to Prophet Google or your favourite non-surveillance type search site, you'll find a number of websites that speak of this society as the leaders of the Illuminati and thus the secret government that runs the whole world. Or you can go to Wikipedia and find this, and I quote, 
the most noble order of the Garda, founded in 1348, is the highest order of chivalry and the third most prestigious honour, inferior only to the Victoria Cross and George Cross, in England and the United Kingdom. It is dedicated to the image and arms of St. George, England's patron saint. It is awarded at the Sovereign's pleasure as a personal gift on recipients from the United Kingdom and other Commonwealth realms. Membership of the Order is limited to the Sovereign, the Prince of Wales, and no more than 24 members or companions. The Order also includes supernumeraries, knights and ladies, e.g. members of the British Royal Family and foreign monarchs. New appointments to the Order of the Garter are always announced on St. George's Day, 23rd of April, as St. George is the Order's patron saint. The Order's emblem is a garter with the motto, and it's here in Latin, and my Latin's horrible, I'm not going to read it, I'll read it in Middle French. <laughs> it's actually English. Shame on him who thinks evil of it, in gold lettering. Members of the Order wear it on ceremonial occasions. Okay, so if you are of a mind, do a little research for yourself on the Order of the Garter. Perhaps the truth, as it often tends, lies somewhere between the two points that I outlined here. I don't know, I'm just speculating. But something that I did read, a uh, very interesting book uh, about King Edward VI, the boy king who ruled after Bloody Mary or the disputed short reign of Lady Jane Grey. Um, now, little Eddie was um, very much a reformer of the church. And I did read a book, and I must get it again. Um, I got it from the library. I read it some time ago. But in there, I did read that um, he was such a reformer that he wanted to remove some of these emblems uh, and pictures of St. George's Cross from the church, uh, from the churches. So that's how far he wanted the reform to go. So quite the little reformer was King Eddie. Um, so that's King Edward VI. Do your do your um, own research about him. Um, very interesting uh, young guy. And sadly, he died very, very young. Or I think the course of England's history, as many of the monarchs did change it, may have been somewhat different. You know, uh, of course, when Elizabeth came in, you know, things did change uh, in a big way. Um, yeah, the big ones for my mind are obviously um, William the Conqueror, uh, Henry four, five, six. Um, oh, I should say Richard, um, the Richards. Um, you know, there's so many of them, but there's a few that stand out. Uh, Queen Elizabeth is probably the biggest one for the early modern modern era, uh, and even to the changes that we see today. I, I suppose Good Queen Bess is the big one. But like I say, do a little bit of research on Edward the Sixth and see what you come up with, because I think we would be living in a very different world had he lived. And in my humble opinion, and this is pure speculation, opinion, I don't mind telling you when it's that, I'm very suspicious about that little guy's death. I think he was moving things along too fast in the direction of the Reformation, uh, away from the uh, early order of the church, uh, more closer to what we might regard as biblical Christianity, my humble opinion again, and uh, I think that the little guy was taken out. Or let me say this, 
this is probably what I should say. I could see a great argument for where he would have a number of enemies that would like to see him not on the throne. That's probably the best way I can put it. As I say, speculation, opinion. And if you haven't worked out, I love the little guy. I think he was great. Uh, get a book from the library. Do some reading on him. Fantastic little fella. All right. Um, who are we moving on to next? Oh, we're not moving on. We're still on Thompson. Sorry about that. Okay, so Giles Thompson. Giles Thompson was consecrated Bishop of Gloucester in June 1611, and he died the following June of 1612, having never visited Gloucester as a bishop. As an interesting aside, when James visited Oxford, and I think this may be the same occasion when Queen Anne enjoyed Perrin's Greek, uh, I'm just assuming that, in any case, James was witness to Thompson being involved in the debate on whether the saints and angels know the thoughts of the human heart. That's interesting, isn't it? Alrighty, let's take a little break here and we'll come back on the other side and finish this panel's list of translators. The History of the King James Bible Podcast is brought to you by Like Flint Radio. You can find them on the web at www.likeflintradio.com. That's www.likeflintradio.com. Now, let's return to a history of the King James Bible Podcast with your host, G.K. Now, as we have seen during the course of this series, a few of these scholars died during the course of or shortly after the translation. Our next bloke, Richard Eads, was sadly the first to die, having passed on the 19th of November, 1604, and it's said that he contributed little to the work. Eads had as many letters after his name as the others, and he too had been both a DD and a university proctor. It might be worthy to point out that he was also a chaplain to the Queen and a participant at the Hampton Court Conference. Now, this is where things become a little murky with this panel, but we will do our best to work through it. We have four more gentlemen to discuss in relation to this panel. Aglianby? I bet I just butchered that poor man's name. Apologies to all his descendants. It's uh, Aglionby, 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 I'm going to go with. <clears throat> Aglionby, Montague, Hutton and Ravens. McClure says Aglionby and Hutton were appointed to replace Eads, whom we've just discussed, and Ravens, who did not end up playing a role in this group. So that's Aglianby and Hutton replacing Eads and Ravens. Now, just to make things as clear as mud, Ockfell says that one list has Aglianby for Eads and another list has Montague for Eads, and that Ravens did take part, and if he didn't, Hutton took his place. Clear? Goodo. Let's leave it there. If you've been listening to this series for a while, you'll know I can't leave it there. So let's dig a little and see if we can't sort it out and at least learn something about these last four chaps. So to John Aglianby, I'm going to go with that. I really don't know how to say this guy's name. Um, I'm usually pretty good with you know, names and uh, place names and surnames, but this one's got me. Okay, so John Aglianby was one of the four debaters on the aforementioned topic about saints and angels. Um, so you remember earlier on, we spoke about the debate about whether saints and angels can can read the hearts of men. So um, he debated Thomas Holland, Giles Thompson, and John Harding before King James. 
Opfell says that Aglianby was at the king's elbow as he moved about the university and that he had been a chaplain to both James and good Queen Bess. He was a doctor of divinity, a distinguished scholar, well read in the church fathers, like a few others in this group and others if you take note, and an acquaintance of Cardinal Bellamini. Um, do you remember him from episode 13, Vade Retro Satana? Aglianby died in 1610, another who did not see the fruit of his labours in this translation. Let's move on now to a guy whose surname I'm pretty sure I can pronounce. James Montague. Montague had been one of the deans at the Hampton Court Conference, and it's thought that he was Richard Eads's replacement. He also had replaced Eads's Dean of Worcester and chaplain to King James. So Montague, it seems here, replaced Eads on this panel. He replaced him as the Dean of Worcester, and he replaced Eads as uh, a chaplain to King James. He became Bishop of Bath in 1608, and he had worked with James on an apology for the Oath of Allegiance in 1607. Um, he had also read to James the four volumes of the works of Cardinal Bellamini. Uh, again, I'll refer you to episode 13. It's uh, Eads and Montague are both um, tied into that episode as well, it seems. Um, so go back, um, if you're wondering what this I'm talking about here, go back and listen to episode 13, Vade Retro Satana, or Get Back Satan, or Get Behind Me Satan, um, and you'll have an idea of what I'm talking about here. Montague is also known for having edited and translated the works of the Most High and Mighty Prince James, which was published in 1618. James's dedication read, To the honour of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, the Eternal Son of the Eternal Father, and the only theanthrope, mediator and reconciler of mankind in sign of thankfulness. Now, I know it's not much, but if you want to begin to understand James's credentials as a follower of Jesus, you can start there. Whoops, look out, I've slipped over and into opinion. I'm going to get emails. Um, but seriously, rewind that on your cassette players and listen to the dedication again. And uh, just to let you know, to be theanthropic means to embody deity in a human form, to be both divine and human. So that's what James's dedication read uh, in that work that Montague edited. Montague died in 1618. Unusually, his bowels are buried at Greenwich and his body is buried in an alabaster tomb at Bath Abbey. One list of translators includes Ralph Ravens. Now, to me, he sounds like a superhero's secret identity. Ralph Ravens by day, the raven by night, saving humanity from the dark forces that terrorise our streets. Sorry. Back to the actual Ralph Ravens. Okay, so some historians say his inclusion is a mistake, but um, he was a fellow of St. John's College, and according to Opfell, the history there indicates that he served with John Perrin on this panel. Um, he was well-versed in the Big Three, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and he too was also a, you guessed it, a DD. He died in 1616, aged 63. The final member of this panel is Leonard Hutton, a canon of Christchurch. 
he went to St. John's College at Oxford, where during Queen Elizabeth's visit in 1592, he wrote an unusual Latin play. Um, Hutton was a noted Latinist, um, so he wrote this play about a civil war of grammar between King Noun and King Verb. Speaking of grammar, it reminds me of when I was a kid at school. My English teacher looked my way and said, You boy, name two pronouns. And I said, Who? Me? Moving on. During King James's visit in 1605, he contributed to a collection of Christchurch verses extolling the royal presence. Now Hutton received his fair share of preferments. He was a vicar of Long Preston in Yorkshire, a canon of Exeter, a rector a couple of times, another vicarage, and they go on and on and on. Now this leads me to think that he was one of those plural parsons we've spoken enough about in this series. But according to Opfell, he had a reputation for learning and he was praised by his contemporaries for his piety and simplicity. He died on the 17th of May, 1632, aged 75. And that concludes the list of translators for the second Oxford company. Well, that's it for another episode. I'll see you back here real soon. Don't forget to share the series with your friends and family. The next episode will be our last one concerning the specific panels. Do you remember which panel is missing? Which one haven't we covered? Find out next time. And until then, as ever, you're listening to a History of the King James Bible podcast. I am your host, GK. And until next time, God bless and hooroo.